wrestling fans, welcome to another episode of the Charting the Territories podcast. My name is Al Getz, your host. Thanks for joining us. And also joining us this month, as he does every month, is my co-host. Let's hear it for a man who just recently celebrated his one-year anniversary as a married man. Give it up for John Boucher. Still married, John Boucher. Also, we should give it up for you, Al. In the month of March. Well, we should give it up for me every month, but in, in particular, I think you're referring to the fact that I had a birthday recently. Yes, yes, that's what yes. I'm referring to. The yes. big five one. Big five one. I am now Ooh. more than half a century old. We actually talked about, uh, off the podcast, we were talking about your anniversary, and you said, they say if you make it a year, you, your chances of making it are are significant. And that reminds me of something people used to say about wrestling in the Memphis territory. Uh, if you, if, if you lasted six months, you know, you got a pay bump. And if you lasted a year, you were set for life. <sighs> so it's the, the same kind of logic here, but, uh, did you and Sarah do anything special for your anniversary? We, we, we did. We, we, uh, we went on a little mini little weekend vacation. We went back to, the uh, place we were married out on out on Long Island by the water uh, went back there. We haven't really had time to have a, a a proper honeymoon, so we just went back to where we got married, had dinner there, and you know stayed there for the weekend and looked at the looked at the Long Island Sound and the waves and the water and the watery water and the wavy waves and the all that stuff. So it was nice and romantic and lovely. Very nice. Water and wavy waves. So 51 years old. I was born in 1971. Uh, this month on the podcast, we're not going that far back, but we are going back to 1978. And we're looking at the first quarter of 1978 in Leroy McGurk's Oklahoma slash Louisiana wrestling territory. We'll look at the roster of wrestlers in the territory, including a former pro football player born and raised in Northeast Louisiana, who, while having made a handful of appearances in the area in years prior, comes in for his first run as a full-timer in the early 1978. And there's another former football player who was actually drafted by the New Orleans Saints in 1973, but he's in the territory as well, and we'll look at a big feud he had that began with a televised arm wrestling match. Plus, we'll take a look at a masked wrestler debuting in the territory who was looking for vengeance and another newcomer who had one of the sweetest drop kicks you'll ever find. Of course, John and I will also each name one new thing we learned on This Month I Learned. And as always, we have Shit John Bought Me off eBay. John, you bought me two items off eBay this month. We will uh, unveil those in a little bit, but I also want to say there's a super duper bonus feature this month um we talked a little bit earlier about a football player who got in a feud with someone started with an arm wrestling match this was paul lorndorf and the brute and when i posted on twitter about this feud i actually got a message from ian douglas who helped the brute write his autobiography entitled brute power the autobiography of bugsy mcgraw and ian actually ended up arranging an interview with the brute so we will play that at the end of this episode, you will get to hear from one of the men who wrestled in the Oklahoma, Louisiana Territory in the first quarter of 1978. 
Now, before we kick things off, I do want to make mention of a couple of recent passings in the wrestling world. Uh, just a day before we are recording this episode, word of Pepper Martin's passing was made public. In addition to a lengthy film career, Pepper wrestled from 1957 through the early to mid-70s. He actually wrestled for Leroy McGurk in 1961, where he was the masked Mighty Bolo, teaming up with the great Bolo, Al Lovelock. Huh. And John, I believe we told this story on an early episode of this podcast, but while Pepper was here... He apparently injured Jerry London during a match, and Leroy McGurk was very upset with him. As a matter of fact, I, I have heard a story that at one point, Leroy, who you'll recall is completely blind, was chasing mm -hmm. Pepper Martin around a room because he was really mad uh, oh, wow. that he hurt Jerry London. Uh, Lovelock ends up telling Pepper that Leroy was still mad at him and was going to get Danny Hodge to intentionally injure him. So Pepper literally went back to his home, packed up what he could get his hands on, took his wife and kids and got the hell out of Dodge. <laughs> I don't blame him. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 you know, lest you think, well, Danny Hodge was a gentleman. He'd never do that. We all remember the Jim Ross's story about what Hodge did to Bob Sweetan. So uh, again, you know, if, if Hodge was, uh, partial to Leroy and Leroy was really, you know, felt uh, that Pepper needed a lesson. Hodge may very well have doled it out to him. This, it was just, uh, you know, yeah. how the business worked at the time. Pepper Martin in film, John, uh, what were one or mm. two of his memorable roles? I remember him, he was in Superman, wasn't he? He was in, the, uh, I the think original Superman 2. Superman 2, okay. I think, okay. but I think it was something, he played a truck driver or something that uh, at one point Superman yeah. lost his powers, and so the uh, the truck driver played by Pepper Martin ended up getting the best of him in a fight scene, but then later on, I think Superman got his revenge. Yeah. Something yeah. like that. I, I remember that one, stands, that one stands out to me, and there was more, some more recent stuff too. I don't, I mean, when I say recent, I mean within the last... 30 years uh like uh was he in scream also was he i didn't know that am i making that up i, I <laughs> was he <laughs> i don't know that could be well while john googles that um sure. the, the other recent passing which of course got a significant amount of coverage not just in wrestling but uh in some mainstream outlets as well was scott hall and it's interesting because nowadays uh, a lot of the talk in the wrestling world is about Cody Rhodes and, and the fact that he is apparently now signed, sealed and delivered uh, or signed and sealed, I guess, with uh, WWE and will be making his uh, debut any day now. And it's gotten a lot of people on Twitter to sort of talk about how in 1996, because there were newsletters and, and there was a form of the Internet, it wasn't like it was today, but there was the Internet that a lot of people knew that Scott Hall was jumping to WCW. And, and my memories of that don't necessarily line up with that. Everybody knew that it was common knowledge that he was going to debut with WCW and it was coming. So John, what do you remember about uh, Scott Hall when they had the curtain call at Madison Square Garden that time between then and when he showed up on Nitro? Did you know he was going to be on Nitro and did you know he was going to be on Nitro when he was? I did not. I did not know. I was. I was not smart. Actually, I mean, I'm not. Uh, I want to say I was not smart, but I was not. 
I was not a newsletter reader, uh, full-fledged newsletter reader into the dirt sheets or anything at that point. I really didn't get into obsessing over the Observer and, and the Torch and all the and all the other stuff until a year or two later, after uh, you know, like the Montreal stuff. That's really what got me reading. So I didn't really appreciate the full, you know, the 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 the, the Hall and Nash, the outsider stuff from the, the full perspective until after the. I really didn't. Uh, uh, yeah, I wasn't plugged into it that 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 far at that point. Honestly. Yeah, and, and the other thing to think about is jumps like that were not commonplace. In fact, that probably was you know mm -hmm. started it all. And nowadays. You know, AEW always makes a big deal when they bring in someone new of 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 doing a big thing, presenting them, and it's oh he jumped so you know so now everyone expects you know when Cody disappears they all expect him to go somewhere else and there's really only one viable choice mm -hmm. so they know it's coming whereas back then even if we knew Hall was done with the WWF as they were named at the time and we kind of figured mm -hmm. there's only one place left for him to go. We figured they would recycle him and bring him back as the diamond stud and just, you know, not make any, not make a big deal out of it. So when they yeah. did what they did and, and the way, you know, they went out of their way to not acknowledge who he was and sort of did everything they could to make a viewer that wanted to believe uh, to let them continue to think that. And nowadays that's all everyone does when it, when a newcomer shows up is, is they do this type of presentation. So I don't think, yeah. I think people knew, but I don't think as many people knew. And I don't think they necessarily knew that May 27th or whatever date it was, was going to be when he was there. And it's just a lot less number of people than, than know today. So, you know, it, yeah. it, it was a different world when Hall debuted. And then a couple of weeks later, you know, Kevin Nash debuted. So, uh, John, did you get to look up whether Pepper Martin was in Scream or not? Yes, I did. I did. Um, and the result? The short answer, and the short answer is yes. Okay. But it is not the scream I was thinking of. Uh, this is probably just me reading me, me subconsciously remembering his Wikipedia entry from years ago. But he was in Scream, the 1981 film Scream, which ah. was also released as The Outing, uh, directed by Byron. Quisenberry. I wonder if he's related to Dan Quisenberry. Oh, yes. Uh, Relief pitcher for the Kansas City Royals, Dan Quisenberry. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, yeah. so he was so, in, yes and no. he was in yeah. a movie named Scream, <laughs> but not necessarily <laughs> the movie the... named Scream. But anyway, our condolences to the friends and family of <laughs> Pepper Martin yeah. and Scott Hall. Uh, and so uh, next up, we're going to go to shit. John bought me off eBay and talking about Scott Hall. You can't mention Scott without mentioning his traveling buddy for much of his career, Kevin Nash. So John, I'm going to ask you, and I'm going to ask our <laughs> listeners one question. What do you think big, sexy Kevin Nash smells like? Um, I would imagine he smells like depending on the time of day. Um, either, uh, some sort of, do they still make Ben Gay? Probably. Some sort of like, you know, 
uh, Ben Gay stuff for like his, his, you know, his knees or his back or something. He's, he's got to be sore. You know, he's probably got some of that stuff on. So some, a little bit like that. And depending on the time of day, uh, maybe he smells like a little bit like a red wine. <laughs> I don't. He seems to enjoy. I think. Uh, I think he wine. smells. I think he would smell magnificent. But we're about to find out <laughs> because item number one of shit John bought me off eBay is uh, air freshener. Uh, and it has a big, sexy Kevin Nash picture on it. And this was, this is in the original packaging. This was from Kevin's NWO days. So this is a good, you know, 25 years old and it has been unopened until now. So the essence of what Kevin Nash smelled like in 1996 or 1997 is contained in this package. And I'm literally going to open it up and take a whiff. And let you guys know what Kevin Nash smelled like in 1997. Okay. <laughs> kind of smells like Ben Gay, I'm not going to lie. Ben Gay with a little bit of a floral, with a little floral scent to it. I don't, I don't know if it's because, you know, the scent goes bad after a while or what, but... Uh, I don't think this is what Kevin Nash actually smells like. I think this unfortunately has uh, has gone bad. Much like Kevin Nash and Scott Hall did when they jumped to WCW and formed the New World Organization of Wrestling with Hulk Hogan. So there you go. But I, I am going to hang this up in my car and see if we get any comments. The other item you got me is even older than 1997. I believe this was issued in 1976. And this is a coin oh, wow. issued by the Humboldt County in Iowa Historical Museum. And I believe it's issued uh, for the Bicentennial. And on it is Humboldt's favorite son, Frank Gotch, who is yeah. uh, perhaps Humboldt's favorite, uh, most famous citizen. I'm not sure, but... Uh, this is one of, I think, a couple of different coins that they issued for the Bicentennial, but it's got a uh, an etching or whatever you want to call it of Gotch on the front and then an etching of the Historical Museum on the back. And from what I understand, the Humboldt County Historical Museum, a significant portion of its holdings are Gotch related. Uh, I don't know on a percentage basis how much, but uh, it's pretty Gotch intense. And uh, I found an article written in 2005 that talked about uh, Gotch's legacy in Humboldt. They said they went to downtown Humboldt and took an informal survey. And in 2005, and keep in mind, Gotch Hackenschmidt was literally 100 years prior and Gotch passed away in 1917. So this is almost 90 years after he died. Two thirds of those polled in 2005 in downtown Humboldt still knew who Gotch was. Oh, wow. And that's not just of wrestling fans. That's just that's literally the average schmuck on the street in 2005 yeah, in Humboldt, that's, Iowa, that's, knew who Frank Gotch was, which tells right. you how important he was to the city of Humboldt, which is nestled yeah. in the county of Humboldt. That's something that, that you don't find too often, where the uh, the, the county seat uh, or the biggest city in the county is is uh, has the same name as the county in and of itself. But so yes, yeah. yeah, so I have a coin from 1976, and I have air freshener from 1997. And honestly, I think both of them smell about there the same. 
<laughs> so let's jump forward from 1976 just a little bit to 1978. A little bit. And we will talk about the first quarter of 1978 in Leroy McGurk's wrestling territory, which encompassed Oklahoma, Louisiana, as well as uh, parts of a few other states as well. As we begin 1978, Dick Murdoch is our North American champion. Dick had recently turned babyface after a few months as a heel managed by Skandor Akbar. And I, I imagine this would be very similar to Steve Austin's heel turn in the WWE after the uh, WCW invasion where uh, they turned him heel. It didn't work and they knew it. So they went with it as long as they could before flipping him back. That's probably what they did with Murdoch. But as a babyface, yeah. Murdoch is now feuding with Akbar's latest charge, the masked Dr. X, Jim Osborne. Now, other main eventers in the territory include Heels, the Assassin, who is Jody Hamilton, Eric the Red, and Akbar himself, who, if you remember, early in 1977, he broke his armor's wrist. He became a manager full-time for the medics and then slowly got back in the ring on a part-time basis while still managing the heels. So he's wrestling just regularly enough to be considered a full-time member of the roster, but he's also managing Dr. X. Uh, on the babyface side, we have Ray Candy, Thunderbolt Patterson, and Randy Tyler. And you can see the full roster on our blog at www.chartingtheterritories.com. A little further down the depth chart are three wrestlers in the process of being pushed up the cards. Uh, baby faces, Stephen Little Bear and Paul Orndorff and heel Ernie Ladd. And you also have two wrestlers who are being pushed down the cards as they finish up their runs in this territory. And that's Babyface Porkchop Cash and heel Jim Starr, who had been one of the medics that Akbar was managing in 1977. Now, Porkchop had been feuding with Dr. X over possession of the U.S. tag team titles. The two held them together in 1977, and then Doc turned heel on Porkchop. So uh, similar to the Ole and Thunderbolt angle in Georgia in the mid-'80s, yeah. uh, yeah. it built to a match between the two where the winner would get possession. It seems that Dr. Mm -hmm. X won these bouts, but for a couple of months, they didn't really acknowledge uh, the tag team titles. And in a couple of occasions, he had he would defend the titles with different partners. But by February, he settled in on a regular partner, and this was The Brute, who uh, some of our listeners may better remember as Bugsy McGraw. They're recognized as champs, but their reign is short-lived as Ray Candy and Stephen Little Bear win the titles on February 22nd. And then Candy and Little Bear become double champs as they win the newly reinstated Louisiana Tag Team titles in March, winning a three-team tournament in Lafayette. Now, the Louisiana Tag Team titles have been dormant since 1969. Um, in early 1968, Leroy McGurk opened what could best be called the satellite territory in the lower half of Louisiana. He had Billy Golden and Ani Wiki Wiki run it, and they had their own small crew, but they would bring in wrestlers from the main McGurk territory for a few weeks at a time. They had tag team titles, and when that territory sort of disbanded and those, those lower Louisiana towns were brought into the main territory, the Louisiana tag team titles were forgotten. Until 1978, when Ray Candy and Stephen Little Bear won them. As for the territory's main singles title, Dick Murdoch loses the North American title on February 14th 
to a man who would be a focal point of the territory for much of the next few years, the big cat Ernie Ladd. Now, Ladd had made a couple of appearances for Leroy years earlier. I believe they were mostly as a special referee, but there may have been an actual match or two. But this is the first time he wrestled for Leroy on a full-time basis. And what's interesting is the previous fall, he spent about a month working for the Culkins. Not long after George Culkin and his son Gil split from Leroy and started their own territory in Mississippi. Early on in their new territory, which at the time was called ICW, Ladd came in for a month and mostly feuded with Mike York. But he ended up starting here the night after Christmas with his first match being in Monroe, Louisiana. Now, obviously, Ladd was a pretty big star in numerous territories over the years. John, when when you think of Ernie Ladd, what territory do you associate him with? I, I still associate him mostly with... Uh... You know, the, the, the mid this territory, like the McGurk Mid South, you know, later, right? I associate him mostly with with uh, with Mid South, just because yeah, from him being on Mid South TV, you know, even even though you know, there's there's probably more video of him wrestling in in other territories. I, I really just associate him with with the Mid South territory. Yeah, you know, in a lot of cases, it depends on where you grew up. I think a fan that grew up in Florida probably remembers Lad. Uh, there, in particular, his, his big turn on Dusty Rhodes. Uh, someone who, yeah. uh, the reason I asked you this is because I was thinking since you grew up in the Northeast, like I did, perhaps you would uh, say the WWF, but yeah. as it turns out, no. So it all, you know, it all depends on yeah. where, where you grew up or what time period you grew up in. Um, Lad was a big star yeah. in numerous territories over the years. There's no way we could do his career proper justice in the span of uh, this little segment. So instead, I'm going to focus on two notable incidents that he was a part of, one which took place in the wrestling ring and also the uh, ringside area, and one that happened when he was playing football in the AFL. Now, as for that story, I think we hit on this briefly on an episode last year, but Ladd was one of several AFL players uh, before the merger between the AFL and the NFL. Ladd was one of several players who after experiencing several firsthand incidents of racism while in New Orleans a few days ahead of the 1965 AFL All-Star Game, which was to be held there, uh, he ended up putting together a, a protest-slash-walkout, and the game ended up being rescheduled and moved to Houston on just a few days' notice. Yeah. Now, there's a, a newspaper article we'll post on Twitter, so uh, be sure to follow us on Twitter. You can catch me at Al Gets Wrestling and John at J-O-N underscore B-O-U-C-H-E-R. But there's also a very detailed article on the website andscape.com, like landscape, but without the L. The gist of uh, the story is that there were several incidents in and around New Orleans involving the black football players. Some had difficulty getting cabs. Some witnessed white patrons at a restaurant literally walking up to the coat rack and removing the black players' jackets and throwing them to the ground. And a doorman at a club on Bourbon Street, after telling several of the football players that they weren't allowed in the club, is said to have pointed a gun at Ernie Ladd's nose and told him, I will pull the trigger if Ladd and the other players didn't leave. The next morning in the hotel, the Black players took a vote and overwhelmingly voted in favor of leaving. 
Uh, as I mentioned, the league scrambled and quickly arranged for the All-Star Game to be played in Houston, which at the time was a much more tolerant city. And in an article at the time in the Houston Chronicle, Ladd was quoted as saying, someone had to take a stand and stop players from being treated as second-class citizens. We didn't do it for publicity. We did it because of what was right and what was wrong. So, John, uh, do you have any other, uh, any other thing about this, this story that sort of stuck out in your mind when reading these articles? Yeah, I mean the, the it's it's just funny because prior to flying into New Orleans, uh, you know they'd been assured that the at the welcome mat, the red carpet, as it were, would be rolled out for them. You know, Instead, it was a white carpet. Yeah, and it just immediately starts going horribly. Like at the airport, none of the cabs will pick them up. Um, those that do will allow. African American passengers in the cab only if it was hailed by one of their white teammates who also rides in the cab with them. I, and the hotels, you know, and keep in mind, not that it justifies it, but just to put it in perspective, is the civil rights bill had just been passed, you know, months earlier. So this is just like a yeah, as a matter of fact, the, time. the hotel that some of the players stayed at had literally just been uh, desegregated. Yeah, so it's like it's a crazy time, and like the way I, I forget which one of the guys tells the story about the the, the the doorman pulling the gun, but it's like they're just trying to find somewhere to go. Just walking around, people are like hurling insults at them as they're just walking down the street looking for somewhere to go, um, saying you know stuff like uh, like John F. Kennedy isn't playing here tonight, and you know you're not welcome in here. Um, you know, and like they they finally hear a club. It sounds like something out of a movie. It's so stereotypical, but they sound something a club playing like James Brown records. You know, so they're like, oh, finally somewhere we can go. And they walk into the bar, and there's like, no, 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 you guys can't come in here. And they're like, well, how can you? You can't. You can't be. You can turn off that music. You can't be playing our music if you're not going to let us in. <laughs> At which point the guy pulls the gun, and it's interesting because like the way the one guy who tells the story is. Everyone takes a step back from the doorman, except for Ernie. Except Ladd. for Ernie, for some yeah. reason, the balls of steel lunges forward at the guy holding the gun. You know, and it's just like it's it's just an insane, insane story yeah. that I, I yeah. highly recommend. If you haven't heard it, read about this. Yeah, we'll it's post a link. Uh, we'll post a a picture of a newspaper article and then a link to this uh, website article on andscape.com. But thankfully, a riot did not occur in New Orleans. At that time, however, several years later in Cleveland, Ohio, a riot did occur and Ernie Ladd was uh, uh, literally at the center of the story. If we consider the ring being in the center of the arena. So, John, and I know a lot of our listeners have probably heard this. I know Jim Cornette talked about it uh, not too long ago, maybe within the last couple of years on his podcast, but. Tell us uh, about the 1974 riot in Cleveland involving Ernie Ladd, Johnny Powers, and Ox Baker. Yeah, so there's yeah, so in the, in the clip that I that I, I link to, and I I think we'll link to, I, I love this clip especially because it's introduced by Bob Luce, <laughs> who introduces it only as he can. I think he. I, I, I think he prefaces it by calling it the fans battle Royal, which is a nice way of saying a riot. Um, 
Now the, the the match was it was uh you know Ox and Ernie and Johnny Powers who had I guess a recently turned heel. Johnny Powers did is that uh, is that true? Yeah. So uh, Johnny had turned heel on Lad, and so this was during a singles match between the two of them. And Ox had yeah. just recently come into the territory. Um, but yeah, so it's during a match between Powers and Lad. And he's just wor- and he's just working on working him over with the, the, whole, the heart punch, the whole thing, and Lad is lying there out. Uh, and according to, to the story, the legend, like, you know, Ernie's trying to, like, make him stop, and Ox is just like, just a little more heat, a little more heat, a little more heat. <laughs> and Ernie's like, we got to get out of here. We got to get out of here. And uh, a little more heat, a little more. And then all of a sudden, it just, it just, you could just see it. It's like watching water boil almost. <laughs> yeah, you can see it on the video. You can see chairs being thrown in the ring. Yeah. At one point, a fan yeah. gets in the ring, and and the either the referee or the ring announcer sort of steps in front of him, and then the guy quickly leaves the ring. But yeah, you know, we've all seen, you know, wrestling, you know, wrestling fans getting out of control and wrestlers having to fight their way to the back. I, in my days in indie wrestling, on a much, much, much smaller scale, had a couple of you know dangerous incidents but this one this just the 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 mob mentality of the fans is unlike what typically happens uh when the heels get their heat and uh at this point both johnny powers and uh ox baker are trying to figure out how the hell they're gonna get out of the ring yeah if you what really like when you realize how scary it was for them it would really drove that home for me is when you watch Johnny Powers finally figure out his escape route and Johnny Powers turns into an Olympic level sprinter. (laughs) And a hurdler because he pretty much jumps over. uh, I think it was in a hockey arena. (laughs) So think about, you know, the guardrails or whatever you call them around a hockey rink. He literally jumps over that to get out of the way. And I think as the story goes, I think, I forget if it was Ox or Johnny, but I think Ox, uh, as he got away, he opened a door that he thought was one of the dressing rooms. It turned out it was a smaller room and where Gypsy Joe was in there with a female fan. No, <laughs> Jesus, I don't know. That's probably, wow. I, mean, so, I may be conflating well, different about, ride stories, ride. but that apparently uh, Ox told Gypsy, uh, the fans out here have, have knives, get me out of here. And then Gypsy Joe hands him a knife. <laughs> But yeah, though this it's on YouTube and uh, there's versions of it. Uh, as, as you mentioned, there's a version of it that uh, has an introduction by Bob Luce. There's also another version of it on YouTube that um, has uh, a voiceover of what Jim Cornette said when he talked about this incident on the podcast. So it's not a watch. It's not live commentary as he watches the clip. It's just something he said on his podcast, but they um, dub it over the, the video footage of this. So that will give you a, a another perspective as well. And as always, John handpicked some other YouTube footage of Lad in action. Uh, there's a match from October 23rd, 1978, in Madison Square Garden with Ernie versus Bob Backlund. There's an interview with Gordon Soley and Ernie from Florida, and this is shortly after a bounty is placed on Dusty Rhodes. And uh, Gordon speculates that the reason Ernie has just returned to the territory might be to collect said bounty. And then there's a match between Ernie Ladd and Chick Donovan, who is literally still going strong today. And that's also from Florida. So 
Um, tell us about the match with Backlund. Was uh, did they have more than one match in the Garden? Do you know? I think this was it. I think this was it. I'd have to look it up so I don't remember off the top of my head. But I love this match. I love seeing Backlund wrestle big guys who like this who aren't necessarily known for you know their 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 scientific wrestling skills, their their work rate, whatever you want to call it. Like I, you know, I love Backlund versus Adrian Adonis or Ken Patera, guys like that. They're going to be great matches, absolutely. But I love watching Backlund wrestle dudes like Ernie Ladd or Big John Stud, Killer Khan, guys like that. It's just I love seeing him work with those bigger, bulkier dudes. It's like I, I, for I don't know. I know they're not, you know, what anybody would rate five star matches, but I love watching those and I love seeing him. I think for the finish, this is before Backlund was using the. Uh, the cross-faced chicken wing. His finish was the uh, the atomic drop, you know, which is, think about that. Um, and him, you know, for the finish, getting Ernie Ladd up, like lifting Ernie Ladd up for an atomic drop and walking him around the ring, like, you know, almost all to all four corners and then giving him the atomic drop. And then Ernie Ladd takes the big bump, the big Ernie Ladd butt bump. It's just, uh, I, I, I love this match. Love it, love yeah, it, love it. I, I think you're right. It looks like it was a one and done in the garden. They also did one match in Toronto for Maple Leaf Wrestling, but they did a match in New Haven that it looks like Ladd won the match, but they never had a rematch. And I don't know if he won the match clean or if it was non-title or title or what, uh, but there's an interesting tag match that happened earlier before the MSG bout in Philadelphia, where Bob Backlund teamed with Peter Maivia to face Ernie Ladd and Jerry Blackwell. So you talk about huh. like liking wow. Backlund working against big guys that, and while Jerry Blackwell yeah. is, most people consider him to be a very good worker given his size, he sort of fits that mold in that it's an opponent you don't necessarily think Backlund would mesh well with, but I have a feeling that they really did. That sound, that actually sounds like a hoot, Backlund and Maya Villa against Ernie yeah. Ladd and Jerry Blackwell. Yeah, it's funny. Backlund's an interesting guy because just a lot of, uh, on Twitter, a couple thing a couple different occasions i was oh i'm always lamenting the fact that there's not a video of a backland versus ray stevens match because they didn't wrestle at the garden and uh funny john mcadam pointed out that they did do that match at the meadowlands but it's not on film and he saw that backland ray stevens in i guess that would be 82 probably at the boston garden he said it was a uh, I think you refer to that match as a loaded diaper, uh, huh. which y- you would think those guys would have a fucking awesome match, right? Like Ray Stevens and Bob Backlund, but he he said it was was no good. And I I I, I trust his opinion on Bob Backlund matches. So it's, yeah, it's I I do too. Think so it would work. Interesting. Yeah. Um, but aside from Lad, the other wrestler in the this territory, in 1978, with a football background, was Paul Orndorff. Paul came here after a run in the Jarrett territory. That saw him feud with Jerry Lawler over the Southern heavyweight title. And Orndorff is given a slow but steady push up the cards over the first few months of 1978. And we can actually see this in his week-by-week spot ratings. And of course, you can see these on our blog at chartingtheterritories.com. But in the first week of January, his spot rating is a 0.51. And keep in mind that spot 
goes from zero to one with a 1.00 being the highest score and meaning you're always in the main events. So a 0.51 is literally in the middle of the range, which means he's a mid carder. Uh, but he's getting pushed up the cards. And by the end of March, it's up to a 0.89, which places him firmly in the category of main eventer, which uh, is a spot of 0.80 to one. So he went from the mid cards to the main events during the quarter. And the feud that propelled him upwards was his feud with the brute. And in fact, using the other statistic we have at chartingtheterritories.com, the FLW score, which stands for feud length in weeks, the feud between Orndorff and the Brute in the first quarter of 1978 had the highest FLW score, and during this quarter it was a 4.73. Now in the Brute's autobiography, which as I mentioned earlier is titled Brute Power, the autobiography of Bugsy McGraw, he says he wrestled Orndorff every night for seven straight weeks except for a low night off. And actually, when you listen to our interview later on, he repeats that same line almost verbatim. Now, if we recall, well, we recall that the FLW score is meant to approximate the length of a feud, uh, and it's called feud length in weeks. So first question is, if they wrestle each other for seven weeks straight except for one night, why isn't the FLW score a 7.00? So let's dig in to the details. Firstly, this FLW score is for the 13-week period from December 26th, 1977 through March 26th, 1978. I say it's for the first quarter, but it basically ends the last Sunday in March. And that and that's, you know, the how I divvy up the time periods. Orndorff's feud with the Brute actually went through early April, so there's about a week and a half's worth of matches that wouldn't be included in this calculation. So if we add 1.5 to 4.73, we still get 6.2. So again, it's not 7. So another factor is that FLW takes into consideration where on the cards the matches take place. If it's not in the main event, it actually gets what I'll call less than full credit. And the only way for a feud that lasted seven straight weeks with matches every single night to get an FLW of seven would be if every single match was in the main event. And in this case, a good number of the early matches, uh, typically the first match in each town in the territory was not the main event. And it typically was an arm wrestling match between the two. And they would do a disputed finish to build to a rematch or to build to a, a regular wrestling match between the two. And as the feud progresses, it's more likely to be in the main event as they have the various blow off matches and stipulation matches. And in this case, they had some lumberjack matches. And then the blow off was a loser leave town match because the brute, I believe, was going to Japan. Another minor factor is that I don't count tag matches. So if it's Orndorff and somebody against the Brute and somebody, which happened a couple of times here, I don't count those in my FLW calculations. This is strictly a you know singles matches or singles encounters, one-on-one -on -one encounters between the Brute and Paul Orndorff. Plus, the Brute's recollection of this, where they wrestled every single night for seven straight weeks, save for one night off, is not exactly correct. And again, uh, and I actually told Ian Douglas this, uh, who was the Brute's 
co-author, I said, of all the, you know, exaggerations or incorrect statements in wrestlers books, this is probably the least egregious of all that I've ever seen. Um, <laughs> it's very possible that in Brute's recollection, you know, so many years after the fact, it felt like he wrestled Paul every single yeah. night, but he exactly. didn't. We actually graphically proved this when I took all of Orndorff and the Brutes advertised house show opponents for the entire quarter and laid them out in calendar fashion. We'll put these out on Twitter, but basically the closest we can get to an uninterrupted streak of matches between the two is not even two and a half weeks. Um, Hmm. There's one several week period where Brute doesn't wrestle anybody but Paul. However, Paul was booked in these smaller Louisiana towns of LaRanger and Homa that weekend, uh, and Brute was not. And Orndorff worked uh, Kurt Von Hess one night, and then a tag team match against Von Hess and Siegfried Stanka. So mm. if the Brute wasn't wrestling anybody but Paul, Paul was wrestling a couple other guys as well. Uh, yeah. But really, there's no more than a couple of week period where there are uninterrupted matches between the two. But that being said, over a seven week period between February 26th and April 9th of the 40 house shows in our records where Orndorff is booked, he is facing the Brute on 32 of them. So that's 80% right there. So it's not every night, yeah. but it's really a lot. And when we look at some of the other FLW scores and some of the other feuds and how often they occurred, this really truly is one of the larger uh, numbers we see and one of the you know most frequent house show matches uh, that we're going to see. They wrestle each other a lot, not every night for seven weeks straight, but a lot. <laughs> and to hear about this feud directly from one of the participants, be sure to listen all the way through mm. this month's episode as I will be playing an interview I conducted with Michael Davis, a.k.a. Bugsy McGraw, a.k.a. The Brute, at the end of the episode. Now, some of the other big feuds in the territory, clearly the biggest was The Brute versus Paul based on our FLW score, but there were a few other big ones. Uh, there was Dr. X feuding with Dick Murdoch. And there was also Dr. X feuding with Porkchop Cash. It started, the, the, the feud with Porkchop Cash started in late 77. So as it peters out in early 78, X uh, won the matches with Porkchop. Remember, he was uh, he got possession of the tag team titles. So by winning that feud, that sort of bumped him up uh, and made him a viable challenger for Dick Murdoch and the North American title. So from there, he's feuding with Murdoch. But you also have the assassin feuding with Stephen Little Bear. And you have Eric the Red feuding with Ray Candy. And Ray Candy is going to be a big, big part of 1978, John. His feud with Ernie Ladd. Uh, if, if you thought the 4.73 FLW score was impressive, wait till you see what's coming the rest of the year. And, and, and Ray's feud with Ernie Maybe. actually spanned more than one calendar quarter. It spanned a good chunk of the remainder of the year. So not only will we look at the quarter by quarter FLW scores, but when we finish talking about 1978 at the end of this year, we'll sort of look at the FLW score for the year as a whole. And it's, it's a, it's a pretty impressive yeah. number. So Ray Candy, Ernie Ladd, they also main evented the Superdome and yep. uh Accurate attendance info is hard to come by, but based on what I've seen, it is very possible that this drew the largest number of fans to a 
McGurk slash Mid-South wrestling show at the Superdome. I don't believe it's the biggest gate. And like I mentioned, there's there are two numbers. There are two attendance figures floating around. But the one I see most often would make it the most attended Superdome show in the history of promoting wrestling at the Superdome before the uh, WrestleMania era. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Question. But, yeah, go right ahead. Go, go off, back off, off topic, not off topic, but back to a previous topic. Sure. Talking about, talking about Ernie Ladd. Um, so it's more, and I've always wanted this, and you're the perfect person to ask. Um, working, you know, for a booker for Watts, would, would Ladd have most likely been the first African-American to have a, a high-ranking position of authority in a wrestling office? Ooh. Or was there someone before him? Do you think? Uh, I, I, you know, I, I unfortunately don't know every Booker for every territory over time, but I'm really trying to think. Uh. And I, I, you know, it is very possible. Now, the other question is when exactly Lad was the Booker? Because remember, everybody that ever booked for Mid South all claims they were Booker uh, in early uh, in late 1979, early 1980, <laughs> and invented the Junkyard yeah. Dog. And it's not possible yeah, for true. Watts yeah. and Buck and, and for Watts and Buck Robley and Ernie Ladd to all have invented him. Yeah. So, um, yeah, you know, the question is whether it's, you know, whether he's designated Booker, it's clear at some point before he is the de facto Booker that he has influence. And I'm yeah. trying to think of any other black wrestler that would have been in a, in a position, you know, and other than unless there were someone in like Canada or, you know, California yeah. or, or, or a place where they just, you know, there, there weren't ever, you know, were, were less racial issues. I can't think of one. Obviously, you know, yeah. I don't think Bobo ever, uh, was a booker anywhere and probably had no interest in doing it anywhere. Of course he was, you know, he's the biggest black star in the early days. Um, Thunderbolt. I mean, unless you count when Thunderbolt was running his little outlaw promotion, the, the IWL. Outlaw. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't think he ever booked for Gunkel. I think Renesto was the booker the whole way through. So yeah. Thunderbolt wouldn't have been there. It wouldn't surprise me, though, to know that Thunderbolt at some point in the early through mid 70s when he's getting big pushes in uh, East Texas and Florida and a couple other places. Mm he may have had some influence. Yeah. So the short answer, it's possibly Lad. And if it wasn't, my best guess would be Thunderbolt Patterson. But listeners, if you have uh, information relevant to this, please let us know. One of the great things I love yes, about this podcast is we are not always right. And when we get something wrong, we admit it and we will correct ourselves. So if any of our listeners have uh, valid info on who the first black booker was in, let's say, the U.S. and Canada, let us know. Uh, but be prepared to, quote-unquote, show your work and, and cite your source. Uh, we want to make sure. Again, <laughs> if you're right, you're right, but I want to properly vet it. So that's a look at the top of the cards, but there's some other uh, wrestlers of note in the territory. Uh, Haystack Calhoun came in for a few weeks and cowboy Bob Ellis came to the area for the first time in over a decade. Now Ellis turned for, turned 49 later on in 1978 and his matches here in the fall of 1978 are believed to be his final matches as a pro. So he actually finished up his career here. Now Bob is credited as the inventor 
of the Bulldog Headlock. And he also may have been the first wrestler to ever reverse the figure four leg lock. So, John, uh, talking about wow. facts and sources, do you know anything about this? Uh, do you did you have you heard that before? Or have you heard it credited to anyone else? I the it, it's almost like from what I remember, it 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 it's it sort of you hear different stories from different territories, and then through the years the stories change. Like I, I, the first one I remember was, uh, Don Morocco reversing, uh, Jack Briscoe's figure four. And I remember solely saying on the, you know, they're, they're showing the, the tape from the, you know, the Fort Homer Hesterly armory and solely's like in Morocco, the first person to reverse the figure four. Uh, that's, that's the one I remember as that stands out to me, but like, I'm sure there were others throughout the, uh, throughout the year. Each what territory the probably the, had their Bob own, you know, first ever. Yeah. So, all what's right. Your, what's the Bob Ellis story? Um, I, you I, know the Bob Ellis story? I don't know the story other than he was the first wrestler to reverse the figure four leg lock. So again, <laughs> listeners, if you got more info, let us know, or, you know, wherever, which would, yeah. whatever part of the country you grew up in, do you have any memories of a wrestler local to you being billed as the first one to reverse it? Uh, just share those with us. Let us know. Uh, a little further down the cards, looking at the mid-carders in the territory in the first quarter of 1978, we have on the heel side uh, Siegfried Stanka, Kurt Von Hess, Jerry Brown, Bobby Jaggers, Doug Summers, Mike and Pat Kelly, and Ali Bay. And on the babyface side, we have a much smaller uh, list of baby faces again, as we talked about before, a lot of territories had an imbalance, they would uh intentionally have a little bit more heels than baby faces, uh, to play into the uh, you know, the odds being against the good guys story, the morality play. But on the baby face side, we have the Avenger, Skip Young, and Bob Marcus. So, first, let's talk about the Avenger. The Avenger, of course, was mm -hmm. Reggie Parks, who is probably best known to listeners as uh, one of the premier belt makers in professional wrestling, but actually had a pretty significant in-ring career. And the Avenger, it's an interesting twist on uh, a wrestler wearing a mask. Yeah. The story here is that uh, the Avenger would come into the area and his sole purpose was to get revenge on one of the heels for something that happened in another territory. And by wearing huh. a mask the heel wouldn't know who it was and didn't know that he's been targeted for revenge. Ah. Now, that being said, I seem to recall, and sometimes that the Avenger would actually explain this during interviews. So you're sort of tipping your hand and you're putting the heels on, you know, in kayfabe, <laughs> you're putting the heels on alert. Well, I don't know who he is, but yeah, he's yeah, after yeah. one of us. Does he, does he look like someone I know? But another interesting thing, when you, when you think about wrestlers shelf life in territories, of course, um, if you're not the top homegrown babyface star that also owns the territory, you're only going to be there for a short period of time. And so this is interesting because the Avenger gimmick gives someone a limited shelf life. If you're coming to a territory solely to get revenge against one specific wrestler, then once that feud runs its course, there's really nothing more they can do with you. And yeah. again, that's fine because that's how the territories work. And a babyface who's not going to get past a certain level, he'll have a big program 
And in this case, since there's a, a, st- a storyline, an angle behind it, it might lead to some stipulation matches, which could take place higher on the cards and lead to better paydays for Reggie. Hmm. But what's all- another thing to think about is if when the feud runs its course, the babyface is leaving, that kind of means the heel has to win in the end. Yeah. So again, hmm. like I said, it's probably, it's something, but I mean, and that's fine. And Reggie clearly was okay with that. If he knew he was leaving the territory, he probably didn't have a problem going under on his way out. Cause he knew, you know, it's just, it's time to move on. So it's an interesting way of almost giving yourself a built in storyline. And he did this in a few places. He did this here. He did this in mid Atlantic. I believe he did it in Amarillo and maybe some other places as well. So if you know you're just going to go to a territory for a few months and you want to make as much money as you can, having this built-in storyline uh, gives you know gives you something to do, gives you some meaningful matches, and the heel doesn't the heel that's staying isn't going to worry about losing in the end because by yeah. nature of the of the gimmick and by nature of how this all works, the the heel has to go over in the end. So I actually think it's yeah. it's pretty clever for someone that knew they weren't going to get above a certain level. Um, but his wrestling yeah, career, aside from wearing the mask, he was unmasked for much of his career. Uh, his career spanned about two and a half decades from late 1955 through the early 1980s. Now, a large chunk of that time was spent wrestling for the Dusix in Nebraska and for the AWA. But of course, he went everywhere. We mentioned here, Mid-Atlantic, Amarillo, also Central States, San Francisco, probably tons of other places as well. And John, you handpicked a few YouTube matches uh, that we will tweet out links to. So uh, tell us what you've got uh, on the YouTube for Reggie Parks. And all of these are unmasked, I believe, as Reggie. Yes, these are all. I got a match, uh, uh, a Harley race match. I think it's from like 79, 80 in Florida. It's just a, a simple five-minute TV match here. But it's a great example of why Harley race was 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 good at doing doing this. You know, he's got yeah, five minutes. Makes uh, Reggie because Florida in, good. in 79 or 80, Reggie is not at the top of the cards. Uh, so this is, you know, sort of a war. And, you know, it's supposed to be a warm up match for Harley as he defends the title against, you know, Dusty or whoever and, and at the house shows. But he gives Reggie yeah, a yeah. lot of offense in this five minute match. Reggie yeah. kicks out of Harley's uh, the, the modified pile driver, the one where he doesn't lift him up. He just puts his head down yeah. and his opponent keeps his feet on, on the mat and then he goes down. But Reggie kicks out of that, has a nice little comeback before Harley finishes him off. And this was uh, one of the matches I think Meltzer um, propped up as an example when everybody freaked out over Kenny Omega versus Alan Angels on AEW a couple of years ago. Uh, oh, really? People freaked out that uh, <laughs> Kenny gave Angels, and this was before Angels uh, was became part of the Dark Order uh, as five, but Kenny gave him a lot of offense. People freaked out, and Meltzer, uh, you know, the, the voice of reason says this is what Harley and Flair used to do all the time, and I think Harley was probably the the first one to do it on a regular basis to when he did TV matches against mid card guys to give them their shine and make the fans, you know, get, make the fans think they could see an upset because in the fans' eyes, if Harley's having trouble with Reggie Parks then Dusty Rhodes or Don Morocco or whoever is, has a yep. great chance of winning. Yep. Yeah. So, but everybody. you've also got, you also have Reggie against Avon Eric and you have another match of Reggie's uh, yes. from Florida around the same time. Yep. 
Uh, there's I mean, him against Fritz from like we're going way back. Uh, I think it's from 1960. Yeah, uh, in Buffalo for Pedro Martinez. Uh, you had a really good idea of how big Fritz Ron Eric was back, like a big, big dude. Uh, some good, you know, back and forth. But Fritz was in control for most of the match, and Fritz Fritz wins in a little under ten minutes with the with the claw. I think it was the stomach claw. I wasn't expecting a stomach claw from Fritz. I was expecting a good old, you know, good old brain claw, right. stomach claw. Wins with that. Uh, there's another one from Florida with Reggie teaming with Dom Serrano against uh, Joe LaDuke and our, our friend Dom Morocco. And I love this clip mostly for Dom Morocco's promo at the beginning where he urges Jack Briscoe to get hair plugs, which is uh, <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> very funny. We're going to tweet out links to these matches. Also, it's, 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 it's funny. I, I, uh, I was always I was wondering why, why, why the Avenger? Why the why the mask gimmick? What's the point of this avenging thing? Uh, not the storyline, just just why did you? And then you see some of these uh, the, the the matches, and you, and 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 it and it sort of it seems to me like it's maybe like a like a Jerry Stubbs uh, as Mr. Olympia sort of thing, where this guy's body looks amazing, right? But he's you know getting up there in age, and he's and his uh, face looks a little older than you know what i mean it's sort of like the face doesn't match the body right so i mean given the mask looks great you know and it's it's also it's another very confusing thing because reggie parks always looked great and there's also the uh australian bodybuilder named reg parks so there people often get confused when thinking you're talking about reggie parks the wrestler who had a you know very good build and they're like, no, you're thinking of Reg Parks. The body, like, no, I'm actually ta- I'm talking about Reggie Parks. I'm talking. So there's a lot of confusion there with the Reg and the Reggie. So that's a makes for a fun. Yeah. We'll also I'll tweet back out back and forth on YouTube for a lot of people. I'll tweet out uh, a magazine article that is literally the opposite of every magazine ar- wrestling magazine article from the 1960s because usually they're filled with outlandish, outrageous claims and boasts of grandeur. And this one, which is from the April 1967 issue of Wrestling World, is titled uh-huh. The Dignity of Reggie Parks. And it begins, yeah. Reggie Parks is a wrestler, not a braggart. He is a well-conditioned athlete, not a goof-off. Parks is a man who believes you get only what you pay for in life. He is proud of his record, his reputation, and his popularity. Mm-hmm. So this article is pretty much the ying to balance out so much yang in the magazines of the 1960s. Yeah. And th- there's also an episode. I love, I love wrestling world. Um, a lot of, you know, a lot of the design of it, it seems like they actually have a design team designing these pages. It looks almost like some of the pages look like they're from like a, like a sixties jazz record. Almost. I love that. And there's one quote in this article that I have read every day to myself since I've scanned this article and I have to read it. Um, the quote is I live alone with my own thoughts. Yesterday is forgotten. And I wonder if tomorrow will ever come. Sometimes my head throbs, my muscles ache and glaring lights have the dimness of a flickering candle. Like, wow, Reg, that's, that's heavy stuff for a wrestling magazine. The dignity of Reggie Parks. <laughs> There's also an episode of Bruce Hart's, Heartbeat Radio podcast featuring Reggie Parks and Nick Kozak. 
So yeah, we'll we'll tweet out a link to that as well. But another babyface newcomer we mentioned when listing the mid-carders was Skip Young, who some fans may remember better as the masked wrestler Sweet Brown Sugar, not to be confused with the other masked Sweet Brown Sugar who was Coco Ware. Phew. So Skip, his real name was Galton Young, G-A-L-T-O-N. He was born in Houston, and his earliest documented matches were in East Texas in late 1974. Some sources say that Young had been friends with David Von Erich, and that was his in to the wrestling business. He's probably best known for his run in Florida, where he worked under a mask of sweet brown sugar for much of his time there, though not all. He held titles in Florida and Texas, including tag team titles with Kerry Von Erich in Texas and with Bruce Reed, Butch Reed, in Florida. His full-time career wound down in the late 80s, though his last documented matches were as late as 1996 in Puerto Rico. So, John, you called some YouTube footage. Please tell me uh, Skip uh, throws drop kicks in at least some of these matches. Yes, definitely does. Definitely does. Um, these, I, that's funny. I, 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 I could highly, I, I, usually I try to pick one for the listeners to listen to, but I would I, honestly watch all of these. They're all really they all have something to offer really interesting yeah they do like skip young gino hernandez i want everyone to watch that it's from november 77 in portland portland tv both guys are really young here especially gino who seems yeah. really green i uh, really he seems to like lack he seems very tentative about a lot of the stuff he does so it's really fascinating seeing him work this you know this sort of these guys work this sort of pace i guess um, and Gino's like being a little bit of a heel at certain points, not really breaking clean on all of the rope breaks and stuff. But for the most part, it's kind of like a, like a baby face, baby face match and a decent, like technical wrestling match. I really like this. They, you know, they shake hands at the end. Um, and I, I've got a Gene Anderson, Swede Hansen versus uh, Skip Young and Jay Youngblood from mid Atlantic 78. Just a great, you know, one of those Cornette garbage tapes from the Crockett garbages, Join in progress. Youngblood and Skip Young are a great babyface tag team. Anderson and Hanson are obviously a great heel tag team. Both these teams are fantastic. Yeah, and I've got to say, that video from 1978, Skip is absolutely ripped. He looks fantastic. I wonder if... All of the guys in Mid-Atlantic around that time were into bodybuilding. Didn't we talk last month about the bodybuilding competition with Monty and uh, Steamboat and one or two others? So maybe they just all were just clanging and banging at the gym all day. But yeah, he looks really, (laughs) really ripped. And he he always looked good. But you can tell in uh, the other two clips that John's about to talk about, one which was from 1982 and one was from 1984, that Skip uh, put on some bulk and, and not necessarily in, in the best way. I, I think he probably felt perhaps to, to get a better push. He needed just to put on size and he was less yeah. concerned with definition as he was with size. He bulked up, but uh, tell us about those other two matches, one from 1984 and one from 1982. I've got a one from 84, September 84, Skip Young and Butch Reed uh, from mid South Oklahoma city, I think. Uh, and just, just such a great, like mid eighties, mid South house show footage, 10, 15 minutes, no commentary. I love watching whatever footage I find of this because the one camera, you know, the guy walking around, uh, right outside the ring, you're going to hear individual crowd members that are especially vocal, 
You can hear the ref counting and admonishing the wrestlers. You can hear the wrestlers vocally selling moves. Reed is on the ascent here, so he gets he gets the Duke with a leg drop from the second rope. Nothing like incredible about this match. It was a great, solid mid south, mid eighties house show match. It was really fun to watch. Um, and then I got threw in one there, one sweet brown sugar match uh, versus uh, Mil Mascaris from Japan in 1982. I like this match, but it's really weird. Like you have two guys here, primarily known as high flyers, but instead of a bunch of high flying, you get like five or six minutes of mostly mat-based wrestling, which is I just <laughs> is weird. Mill, of course, wins. It's 1982. Mill Mascaris is not going to lose. Uh, he wins after he gets two of those cross-body things that he would do, uh, which is one of the few high-flying moves in the match. I, I, I like this a lot. It was just not what I was expecting out of a sweet brown sugar no mascaras match. It was, yeah, it was and, weird, and but I liked it. This was Skip's first tour for all Japan. I think he'd done one tour for New Japan a couple of years earlier. And considering his status in the wrestling world and that it was his first tour with all Japan, he's actually protected pretty well uh, leading up to this match. This this match with Mill took place on the last night of the tour. So it seems like, you know, oh. they what they always do, they they don't make the lineups for the last shows on the tour until the tour is already underway. So particularly when they bring in new foreigners, they sort of sort of feel them out. They want to see how, how they look, how they get over. But it seems like they liked Sugar enough that they were going to put him in a position to have a significant match with Mill on the last show of the tour. It was actually third from the top. The main event of that show, the last night of the mm-hmm. tour, was Baba and Saruta against Tor Kamada and Gypsy Joe. The semi-main event was Stan Hansen versus Ashura Hara. And then third from the top was Mill versus Sweet Brown. So he's ahead of uh, the Destroyer. He's ahead of Tenru versus Mark Lewin. He's ahead of a lot of other wrestlers that you think would be positioned above Sugar. But building up to that match, Sugar gets a lot of wins against lesser competition, mostly Japanese wrestlers, but uh, he gets a win over Shiro Koshinaka. He gets a win, a couple of wins over Rocky Hada, and he gets two wins over Prince Tonga, who is at this time considered... He's not considered a foreigner. He's considered one of the, the regular Japanese boys, but of course you know who he was, right, John? Uh, that is Haku. Yeah, he literally was was treated as one of the, the the native Japanese wrestlers when he worked for All Japan. But Sugar actually beat Tonga huh. on the first night of the tour, and then again later on. So uh, they must have liked what they saw in Sweet Brown Sugar because they built him up for a meaningful match against Mil Mascaras in 1982. Yeah, it's funny, last month. Last month we talked about uh, Armand Hussein is our our own international man man of mystery, if yes. you will. And and and, and Skip Young, no, the, the, although neither fond of wearing a fez or nor affecting a British accent, also kind of a mystery man in, in his own right. Like there's not it's hard to find stuff on this guy, like about his 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 non wrestling life. Like I found yeah. like the birth records, uh, marriage records. A few articles about him as a high school football player, some high school yearbook photos of him in his football gear. That's really all I've found of a record of him even existing. Yeah, um, I mentioned. And it's like, and I mentioned early on that his his into the business is believed to have been uh, by being friends with David Von Erich. I can't find any proof 
of that, which doesn't mean it's not true. But what I'll say is this, Skip was a good six or seven years older than uh, David and Kevin. And Skip grew up in Houston. And the Von Erichs, of course, were from Dallas. So it may very well be true, but it would it would take some interesting circumstances for them to become friends in uh, when Skip was in his very early 20s uh, to, to get him into the ring. So, again, uh, any listeners who have any more information, any more valid vetted information on uh, Skip being friends with David Von Erich or any of the Von Erichs, let us know. Yes, please. So other wrestlers uh, in the in the mid cards uh, I mentioned on the heel side we have uh, Siegfried Stanka and Kurt von Hess as well as the Kelly twins they were both uh, regular tag teams of course the Kellys were a regular tag team but Stanka and Hess teamed up regularly as well and this played into something uh, that we talked about last month on the podcast where many territories had more regular heel tag teams than babyface teams. And again, like I mentioned, you know, that just is, is part of the morality play of wrestling where the babyfaces always have the odds against them and they don't have the numbers yet. Uh, at the end, they usually pull through victorious and, uh, two other wrestlers mentioned earlier, Jerry Brown and Bobby Jaggers were about to become a regular tag team starting at the very end of March. Now, in the preliminary matches, there are a lot of names familiar to fans who grew up watching wrestling in the 80s. On the babyface side, you had Brian Blair, Rick McGraw, and Lynn Denton, better known as the Grappler. And on the heel side, you had Larry Booker, who was Larry Latham slash Moondog Spot, and Carl Fergie. So you can see the whole roster for the territory, as well as their week-by-week spot ratings and their overall spot ratings, whether they were heel or babyface, and how many nights per week they were booked on average based on our records you can see all that at chartingtheterritories.com and you know it's it's really hard sorting through all this info and and and, you know getting the who's who right given how many wrestlers use more than one ring name over the course of their careers it's sometimes really difficult now uh, another member of the roster in early 1978 here was a wrestler billed as johnny boyd who is not lord jonathan boyd but actually a young Johnny Mantell. And Johnny was the subject of the very first episode of my Wrestling History Mysteries podcast, where we dug in deep and used research and deduction uh, to confirm his identity. And at the time, more than one online source incorrectly had credited these appearances to Lord Jonathan. But due to our work and research, at least one of those sources went ahead and corrected their records. So wrestling history mysteries. Yeah. But that's what that podcast is all about is trying to, uh, correct minor, but plentiful inaccuracies in the historical record of professional wrestling, such as it is. And earlier this month, John, I released another episode of wrestling history Mm -hmm. mysteries. And this one looked at a wrestler in Florida in the fall of 1972, who, Sometimes is billed as Tito Montez and sometimes is billed as Carlo Montez. So the question is, was it Tito? Was it Carlos? Was it both? Or was it neither? We answer that question on the podcast. And it's worth noting that once again, there are discrepancies among the uh, major results aggregators. Wrestlingdata.com had it right and cagematch.net did not. So hopefully someone at Cage Match listens to Wrestling History Mysteries and 
updates their records based on our research. Next month, there will be a new episode of my Stats 101 podcast, and that's going to come out the second Thursday of next month. And that one is going to look about at somebody we talked about a little bit earlier, Bob Backlund. But in particular, we're going to hey. talk about his run in Amarillo in 1974 from a unique perspective. And this is uh, this. If you listen to my podcast on a regular basis, you probably have figured out that I don't hold title histories and title holders in the same regard as a lot of people do. I think because so little data and statistical information is available on wrestling that people have took to title histories and, and how many reigns and how many titles each person won as a barometer of their success. And I'm not saying they're wrong, but I'm saying there's probably a better way. And, and next month on Stats 101, I'm going to show you exactly why I feel this way. So the question I'm going to answer is, does the title make the spot or does the title holder make the spot? And John and I will return on the fourth Thursday of April with the next episode of this podcast. And we're going to look at the second quarter of 1966 in the Oklahoma, Louisiana Territory. If you'll recall, in our January episode, we talked about the first quarter of 1966, which featured the Assassins feuding with the Kentuckians. Now, in the second quarter, the Assassins feud with a makeshift babyface tag team, as well as another heel tag team. Plus, Danny Hodge looks to regain the NWA World Junior Heavyweight title after a legitimate car accident in January caused him to drop the title. Plus, we have the debut locally of Tor Kamada. We have the return locally of still technically a rookie Jack Briscoe. Plus, who the fuck is Battleship Johnson? All that and more next month on Charting the Territories. We hope you learn some new things about professional wrestling in the territorial era this month. John and I are constantly learning new things, and each month we discuss, we each discuss one such thing, uh, and it's called This Month I Learned. So, John, what did you learn this month? Well, this is a, this is a first for me, I think, on the on the This Month I Learned thing. I mean, this is uh, not really a, 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 a wrestling thing, sort of... Uh, tendentially uh, wrestling related. So earlier we were talking about the sleep around sugar, skip young. uh, And in, I was trying to solve the the mystery of uh, David Von Erich. You know, how did, how did these guys, how could they have, have met, you know, given their, their age difference, the geographical difference. I'm looking into their different, different high schools. Uh, You know, I got found a copy of, uh, you know, Skip Young's high school yearbook. I got down, went down a long, deep, dark hole. And, you know, so I started researching Skip Young's high school, which he went to a high school called uh, South Oak Cliff High School, uh, which is also the alma mater of uh, Dennis Rodman, uh, oddly enough. No way. Uh, so wh- where was yeah. this in Houston or in the surrounding areas? I think this was closer to Dallas. Okay. Oh, all right. So, all right. So we're getting warmer. Okay. I'll let you continue. Um, so I'll have to, I'll have to confirm, but I believe it, is, it was closer to, to Dallas than, than Houston. Um, so when trying to find more about the life 
of Skip Young. And I, I came up with basically nothing, nothing of interest about his high school athletic career. Just a couple, couple interceptions on the football field, whatever. Nothing, you know, nothing super exciting. But I did find out some interesting things about an ex-principal of the high school. <laughs> uh, a 2008 investigation within the Dallas School District's Office of Professional Responsibility found that then-principal Donald Moten, as well as other school officials, staged cage fights among troubled students, making them fight in a steel utility cage inside a boys' locker room. The investigation showed that Moten and other employees knew of the practice, allowed it to go on for a time, and failed to report it. Wow. Uh, additionally, South Oak Cliff High was stripped of its 2005 and 2006 state basketball championships after investigators determined Moten had coerced teachers into changing athletes' grades. Uh, this is where it gets a little even crazier. District reports also confirmed unauthorized pep rally fundraisers that Moten used to fund personal gambling trips. Uh, Moten had a previous checkered work history at the Dallas Police Department, one that included staging his own kidnapping and the fatal shooting of an elderly Crime Watch volunteer. Uh, Moten was moved from the South Oak Cliff High to Jackson Elementary School in 2006. Oh, that, and that seems to be a, a, a wise move. Yeah. So I, I, nothing about Skip Young in high school, but I, I found the, the, the cage fighting and the troubled students, uh, principal staging his own kidnapping. And it's, it's, it's yeah, so I, that, that, that's what I learned this month. All right. So Ooh. mine is also not about wrestling, except that they're, that it's all going to come around in a nice little bow and have a very small connection to wrestling. So a couple okay. of months ago on the podcast, I mentioned uh, the band, the Polyphonic Spree. The band had been formed by Tim DeLauder, who had been a part of another group called Tripping Daisy. When Tripping Daisy's guitarist died of a drug overdose, Tim formed this new group and focused on uplifting symphonic pop music as opposed to the grunge alternative style of Tripping Daisy. And it was basically in response to the drug overdose of his friend and bandmate, uh, he literally, you know, changed course and, and, and focused on making positive, uplifting music. What's interesting about the Polyphonic Spree is that they were dropped by their record label, 679 Records, in early 2003. And not long after that, one of their songs was used in an iPod commercial. And after that, numerous other commercial tie-ins started popping up, leading to a surge or an increase in popularity and awareness for the band. So in hindsight, the record label made a bit of a mistake. Uh, by dropping them. Now, of course, increased sales of the existing catalog would still go to the label, but they probably missed out on the rights to new records or future touring income by dropping them from their label right before they sort of, you know, hit it big. And that brings us to another band. And this, this is what I learned this month. And this band was named Wigwam. So, John, before I go any further, real quick, do you know where I'm going with this? I do not. I okay. do not know Wigwam. All right. Well, buckle up. Some of our listeners, that, that name might have triggered something, but if not, buckle up and come along for the ride. Wigwam was a Norwegian glam rock band who released four albums between 2004 and 2012 and then broke up. They reunited in 2019 
and hired a booking agency named United States to line up concerts for them. Now, with live touring being extremely limited due to the COVID pandemic, as we get to 2021, the agency was looking to pare down their roster. And among the artists on the list of those they were going to cut was Wigwam. So they contacted the band's lead singer, and the singer literally told them, you might want to wait, you might want to wait a couple of days. But they didn't. The band was dropped by their booking agent on January 7th, 2022. Six days later, a new television program debuted on the HBO Max streaming service, starring professional wrestler John Cena. This show was uh, a DC Comics property called Peacemaker. So, John, have you have you seen Peacemaker huh. at all? I have not seen Peacemaker. Okay, it's absolutely hilarious. It is it is really really good. But the opening theme. Two Peacemaker was a song by Wigwam titled, Do You Want to Taste It? And the show's title sequence, which featured Cena as well as the rest of the cast doing an intentionally poorly and wooden choreographed dance sequence ended up going viral. So just like 679 Records dropped Polyphonic Spree right before they ended up having a surge in popularity, the same thing happened to United Stage. Uh, in an article for Billboard a few days after the premiere of Peacemaker, United Stage representative Jan Roger Andreasen said they had known about the upcoming song placement for the band, but didn't realize how prominent the plug would be. Andreasen said, usually a song featured in a TV series is less important for ticket sales and concert booking than one would think. This time might be different, though. So there you go. Another example of some suit in the record biz, not knowing what the hell they're talking yeah. about and costing their employer a, a, a nice amount of money because Wigwam, uh, you know, presumably is now going to be in demand for their live shows. But John, definitely check out the show Peacemaker. It is hilarious. Cena is obviously really good. Um, but also Google uh, the opening sequence because uh, you'll just get a kick out of it. Like I said, it's really, really bad choreography, but done on purpose. They're uh, they're they're from Finland, you said. Uh, they're Norwegian. So uh, as uh, as Bill Mercer would say, they're from Norwegia. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> good one. So yes, no. So from Norway, um, but yeah, Wigwam, glam rock band of the two thousands. Uh, so about 20 years after Glamrock died, but, uh, but yeah. fun, fun band, catchy tune, great show. Check it out. That's what I learned this month. And uh, again, for all of the things we talked about, the YouTube clips, the articles, the website links some pictures that John has from his collection of some of the wrestlers we talked about. I will uh, be putting those out on Twitter over the next couple of days. So be sure to follow me at Al Gets Wrestling. And I also, uh, by uh, by the time a lot of our listeners hear this, I will be on the road as I have decided to take oh. on a very ambitious project this year. And over the course of uh, the next six months or so, I plan on attending a baseball game in every Major League Baseball stadium, all 30 of them, this season. Now, I've done this before, but it took me a few years to do it. But this time I'm going to do it all in the span of six months. And I'm also going to hit up 
at least four minor league games, one at the AAA level, one at the AA level, one at high A, and one at low A. So all four levels of minor league baseball, plus all 30 major league baseball stadiums. So I'll keep you updated of my travels on this podcast and on Twitter at Al Gets Wrestling. And John, um, and, and hopefully when I go see the, the damn Mets, uh, John is going to join me. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'll, Mets and Yankees, if all goes as, well, as I, planned. I ch- yeah, I ch- they, they rejiggered the schedule. There now is no longer a daytime Yankee game on the same day as a nighttime Mets game. Oh, um, man. What they ended up doing is uh, at one point they weren't going to make up the first week of games, but now they are. So they redid the schedule. They added in a bunch of double headers and changed things up just enough that that particular day is, is no longer viable. I'm actually doing it a different day. I'll, I'll tell you when it is, but I'm doing uh, a Yankee day game. And then the following day is a Mets night game, which works out well for me because I can visit my mom and my family and, and just make it, make it a trip instead of just a, you know, quick hit baseball game. So, um, but yeah, so we'll, we'll, if John and I meet up at uh, City Field, we'll, uh, or Yankee Stadium, we'll tweet out some pictures of us drinking adult beverages. Um, aside from that, what else do you have exciting, if anything, coming up? I have nothing exciting coming up, Al. <laughs> nothing exciting. Follow, but, but you should still follow me on Twitter at J-O-N underscore B-O-U-C-H-E-R. So you can watch me not do exciting stuff. Actually, it works. If you follow me, it works. Me not doing exciting stuff works to your advantage because I have plenty of time to scan fascinating, interesting things from my collection and post them on Twitter. So it's a win-win, really. So that's what you're, I mean, that. but at least you're up to something. If it's not going somewhere, at least you are constantly scanning in various materials from your archives and sharing them with the world. For free, for free, yes, for free. I can't beat that. Now, our blog at chartingtheterritories.com is updated monthly, and new podcasts are released on the second and fourth Thursdays of each month. To be the first to know when new podcast episodes are available, subscribe now wherever you find your favorite podcasts and at chartingtheterritories.com. And now, here is the interview I conducted with the Brute on March 15th of this year. He doesn't do a whole lot of interviews, so I'm thankful we were able to get to talk with him a little bit about his career in wrestling and his time in Leroy McGurk's territory. So stick with us and listen to the interview, and both John and I will see you next month right here on Charting the Territories. See you next month. Al gets here, and I have a very special guest this month on our Charting the Territories podcast. We're looking at the early months of 1978 in Leroy McGurk and Bill Watts' territory, and I'm fortunate enough to be talking with a man who was there. And I'm speaking with Michael Davis, who uh, was better known to wrestling fans as Bugsy McGraw or The Brute or The Skull or a few other names. But Michael, welcome. Uh, how are you feeling today? I feel good. Absolutely. That's wonderful. Great to hear it. Uh, as I recall, as mentioned in your book, which is titled Brute Power, the autobiography of Bugsy McGraw, you retired to sunny Florida. So uh, I hope you're currently uh, enjoying some warm weather in Florida. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm right here in Florida, uh, Daytona Beach. Very nice. I actually had some friends that were just there for bike week. Yeah, <laughs> we, 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 
we finally got rid of the motorcycles. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think they come twice a year, don't they? They also come in October. Yeah. Twice a year. Okay. So you've got a few months to recover from them being here in March before they come back again in the fall. But I wanted to talk with you about your time wrestling in Leroy McGurk's territory in Louisiana, Oklahoma, and the surrounding areas. In particular, you came in and had a really big feud with a man who was a youngster at the time, but who was in line for a big push as a top star. And as you mentioned in your book, one of the points of having Paul Orndorff wrestle against you was so that he could learn the ropes from wrestling against someone who at that point had been an experienced wrestler who had traveled across the world, who had main evented in Madison Square Garden, wrestled in Australia, all over the place. And so tell us a little bit about your memories of your feud with Paul Orndorff in 1978. Uh, uh, yeah, well... At that time, you're correct. He was uh, <clears throat> uh, he was what they call green. He was just uh, just beginning, I guess. I don't know how long he had been wrestling. I'd say about a year at the most. And <clears throat> so we started in. Uh, you know, we you know we started wrestling each other. And actually, what actually happened, uh, we wrestled each other for seven weeks in a row. Every night, every night for seven weeks, all except one. So every night for seven weeks, except for one night, we wrestled each other. And if I, if my memory is correct, I believe what started the feud was an angle on television uh, with an arm wrestling match. Is that correct? I believe so, yeah. Okay, and I know that's something they did with Paul a couple of years later, uh, after Bill Watts had split from Leroy and started Mid-South Wrestling, they did another arm wrestling tournament on TV. But as as you stated, your memories are that you wrestled Paul every night for seven weeks, uh, except for one night off. I actually worked together with Ian Douglas, who uh, helped write your autobiography, and you and Paul wrestled each other a lot. There are, I think, one or two times where you were each in different towns or wrestled somewhere else. Uh, but for the most part, that statement about seven straight weeks is correct. And one of the interesting things I, I enjoy about your book, I've read many wrestling books, and many of them, the things that the writer, the wrestlers say about themselves are clearly ridiculous exaggerations and, and untruths. And, and your book overall is one of the most honest books I've read. Uh, what I told Ian, it reads to me like it's just a story of a regular guy who happened to work in a very irregular profession for a couple of decades. And you're very honest and open about yourself as a wrestler. You don't claim you were the greatest of all time, but you make a point of saying when wrestlers would come up to you and thank you and tell you how much they enjoyed working with you or how good your match was. And clearly that's why Bill Watts wanted you to work with Paul, because he knew you would be able to make Paul a better wrestler and to look better by being in the ring with him. Yes, absolutely. I, you know that was uh, that that was absolutely one of the reasons, uh, and uh, without a doubt, I mean, I knew how to work. I was, uh, you know, I could. Uh, you have what you have nowadays. Uh, 
um, I classify you have performers and you have workers. <clears throat> performers will 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 entertain you for the moment, and there's some great performers out there, um, and and they're exciting to watch. But workers, they a worker will um, make you believe that that's the difference between the two. I always told people that um, what I wanted to do when I was in the ring, you know, I wanted to make an impression on the people, but if you can have them after the matches while they're driving home, if they're talking about you, then you made an impression. And, you know, that's the way that I have that's the way that I viewed it. And also another thing that I told a lot of guys, you know, younger guys was <clears throat> you have to learn that no matter where you are, I don't care what size the crowd is. If you're in New York at the garden or, you know, wherever in a spot show with only, with only a few hundred people there, you've got, to, <clears throat> you have to realize that once you get in that ring, you're one and that crowd becomes one so it's one on one and you have to realize you didn't pay to see them they paid to see you so you have to take control of that whole crowd so that's why I say the crowd is one you're one and once you learn that and there's very few you know there's very few that ever learn that but you know I mean it's like you know, like I said, you know, there's a lot of pre there's a lot of performers, and you know they you know they can be nice to watch. They can be, you know, re really entertaining. But a but a worker will uh, make you believe. That's the difference between the two. I I agree absolutely. And another thing I'll say, the job of today's performers, who, as you mentioned, are very good performers, their job is to get fans to watch them on television every week. Your job in 1978 or in the 60s or in the early 80s was to get fans to pay money to buy a ticket to see you almost every week. I'm looking right now at your matches with Paul Orndorff in Oklahoma City. Your first match was on January 13th, 1978. Then you came back with an arm wrestling match on February 3rd, then February 17th, then February 24th, then March 3rd, then March 17th, then March 24th, and then a loser leaves town match on March 31st. So in a span of less than uh, two and a half months, you wrestled each other eight times in the same city. And you needed to get fans to buy tickets each and every time. Well, yeah, that's the, you know, they're, they're in, you're hitting the nail on the head there. What if you look at the day and this big man, well, we used to call him junior at the time I knew him because I was working for uh Vince McMahon senior, but um, the way, Junior handles uh, things, and he's been very successful at it too. But <clears throat> when he comes into a place, it's usually only maybe once or tw 
twice a year, all in the same cities. You know what I'm saying? And um, and so he so he has like what they call a happening. Okay, it's happening. You know, so here we come with all these guys and all these matches and blah 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 and blah blah blah. Uh, for instance, I can give you an example of myself and um, when I went to Florida, and we used to wrestle in the same in the same cities every night, uh, every week. You know, it was the same. It was the same cities every week, week after week after week after week, year after year. How do you? draw a house and continue to draw a house every week. If In today's promotion, if Vince McMahon had to do that, his crowds would drop to almost zero. You know what I'm saying? He couldn't, when he comes in, like I say, he wrestles in, in whatever city once or twice a year, and then he leaves, you know, so he has what what they call is a happening, you know, okay, here comes all the wrestlers and um, from Vince from McMahon's uh, yeah, promotion. So if you want to see this show, you, uh, you have to come now. We, at the time I was wrestling, and like in a, a lot of places, and also for Oklahoma with Watts. You went to Oklahoma. You went to Louisiana. You went to um, some Mississippi and yeah, Missouri. A lot of those towns he ran like every week, <clears throat> week after week after week, month after month, year after year. So you have to keep the people you know entertained to the part or to the point, I should say, that they want to come back next week and then the 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 next week. What I'm saying to you is at the present time, if Vince McMahon had to do that, his crowds would really drop off drastically. Our crowds, you know, you had to maintain the crowd. You had to you had to offer the some you had to offer the people, the fans, something they wanted to see every week. <clears throat> There's the difference between the two. In many ways, you have to uh, back in uh, the 1970s. You have to make the fans happy while at the same time making them mad enough to want to come back next week. So you have to give them an an entertaining card or, you know, give them something to be excited about, but at the same time, give them something that's not quite finished that requires them to buy a ticket for next week's show. That's why your feud with Paul Orndorff lasted as long as it did, because people still wanted to see Paul get his revenge on you and that you kept, you know, teasing them and teasing them until finally he defeated you in a series of loser leave town matches in various cities. Yeah, well, you know, there it is. I mean, you have to be, you have to keep the interest of the people. Do they want to see this again and again and again and again? You know, this week, next week, and uh, the week after that, that's what it takes. You have to have, you, uh, <clears throat> you have to make it personal. 
Right. And I think that's a testament to how successful you were in your matches with Paul, because a lot of times we see if a feud didn't draw as well as the promoters had hoped, they would finish it up and move on to something different. But the fact your feud did last so long, clearly, I think it's a testament to your abilities since you were the veteran and the heel, uh, you were able to, uh, get the fans to rally behind Paul and really want to see him get that pinfall over you, or maybe just to beat you up one, one or the other. They wanted, they wanted to be happy and they wanted to see Paul victorious over you. So I think the, as long as your feud lasted in 1978, it is validation of your abilities as a professional wrestler at that time. Yes, absolutely. You know, I mean, you have, you, <clears throat> you have to know working is an art form. Okay, mm-hmm. you have to uh, you have to know what to do at the time and when to do it, and you well really and truly you have to believe in yourself. You have to be in shape. You know what I what I would tell young wrestlers too. You know, is that if you want to be a professional wrestler, there's two things that are very important. One is you can't have any fear. No fear. You have to take chances with your body. And you can't have any fear. If you have any fear, you're going to be, you know, that's going to hold you up a lot. The second thing is you got to be in shape, really good shape, not just, you know, because I hear people say, well, you know, he's in good shape or I'm in good shape or whoever. You know, you got to be in excellent shape because this is this is not the same. You know, we're, we're not playing um you have football here. We don't have a huddle for 30 seconds. You know, you stop and you have a huddle for 30 seconds and then you, you go again. Then you have a huddle for 30. In in professional wrestling, you go all the time. <clears throat> you don't stop. So you got to be in excellent shape. And uh, that was one of the things that I prided myself on. I was I was in really great shape. I could, uh, I could outlast almost... Almost, almost anyone. The only one that I saw that could be in 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 better shape than me was uh, Bruno Sammartino. And of course, Bruno, one of the greatest professional wrestlers of all time, and also known for his cardio and his endurance. So that's certainly nothing to be ashamed about. If he was the only one that could outlast you, that says a lot. But Michael, I wanted to ask. If you had any recollections in 1978 of the relationship between Bill Watts uh, and Leroy McGurk, uh, of course, we know they had their split in the summer and fall of 1979. So we're still about a year and a half before that. But in in your experiences with them, do you recall what the relationship between them was in early 1978? Well, um, I can recall... a little of it, you know, like, uh, what, uh, the one we would see, uh, mostly almost all the time was Watts. Uh, so Bill Watts, we would see him a lot. And uh, unless it was a spot show, you wouldn't see Watts or, uh, the only one you would see that at that time was the booker. Um, uh, but, um, 
Leroy McGurk, you would see him probably in, uh, I'd say, once a week at the most, maybe in, in Tulsa okay. or Oklahoma City. I, but I really think you would see him more more in Tulsa. So that's about all I knew about it because uh, uh, the one we saw most of the time was Watts. All right. Good Good to know. I was just wondering if you had any sort of insights as to the relationship at the time. Of course, when Watts returned to this area uh, in 1975, he ended up uh, acquiring a large piece of the company. Uh, so in many ways, him and Leroy were partners. Uh, but as we get into later 1978-79, clearly uh, something happens between the two and Watts forms Mid-South Wrestling in 1979. Of course, by that point, you were out of the area. Uh, again, we're talking with Mike Davis, a.k.a. Bugsy McGraw, a.k.a. The Brute, who got his start in Detroit in the late 60s, ended up becoming a star in Vancouver, then took that stardom and main evented in numerous territories in the U.S., plus got to travel to Japan, New Zealand, Australia, and so many other places over the course of his 20-year career before finishing things up in the Sunshine State of Florida. And so do you have a favorite place that you wrestled in? Not necessarily a town or a building, but of the territories you worked, which do you recall the fondest? Oh, well, yeah, I'd have to say Florida. That was, uh, you know, that <clears throat> when I came, well, actually, I went to Florida in uh, the first time. 1969 was the first time I went to Florida. Uh, I, <laughs> a long story short, I was working, when I began, I was working for the Sheik. Uh, you know, he was... Um, yeah, the Sheik was really something. He was, uh, you know, he, at the time, he was really active. He he was a real draw. You know, he drew a lot of money. And then uh, the first time I went out of Detroit, I was there about a year, and then he sent me out. I went to, um, I went to Calgary, and uh, and he sent me there in January. And, it, oh, my God, it was one of the worst winners they had they had ever had in years you know and I went there and it was so cold and I had so many problems I mean it's like with my car and uh, the engine because it was so cold you had to get um, you had to get the freeze uh, plugs and then they weren't drawing a whole lot of money either the the main heel at that time was the Stomper. I was there, and you know, the trips were really, really long, and it was you were constantly in snow, and you know, it, it was just horrible. You know, I mean, I the money was short, and the trips were long, so I called the Sheik, and then he. Yeah, he sent me to Florida. Well, you know, so uh, the first time I went to Florida, 1969, I was there about, mm, I, I'm i not quite sure, almost a year, I guess. And then, you know, I went to other places. But then again, I, uh, the second time I went to Florida was 1979. And we had, I mean, what a, what a run we had there. 
that was one of the one of the greatest runs I've ever seen in my life. We were drawing money every for a whole year, every card, I mean every night or card you could say, because we always used the same towns every week, the same the same towns. We went to towns week after week. And <clears throat> you know, we 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 either sold out or we had a packed house for a whole year every night and 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 it was really enjoyable you know we were having a lot of fun we were making money and so you know it always helps to make that money right (laughs) of course and and i'm sure i'm sure the weather in florida also helped your enjoyment especially compared to calgary in the winter oh yeah yeah calgary when i was there they had one of the worst winters they've had in roughly four decades it was hard but anyway i went to florida but the second time i went to florida was really you know was really i was there for uh three years uh, and i did well and you know i really enjoyed it and had a lot of fun yeah well yeah and if you want to To our listeners, if you want to learn more about Bugsy's big run in Florida, as well as all the various other territories he worked and the people he came across and who he respected and admired, and some also amusing stories about life on the road as a professional wrestler, uh, definitely highly recommend Michael's book, which is titled Brute Power, the Autobiography of Bugsy McGraw, written by Bugsy McGraw, along with Ian Douglas. So, uh, Michael was writing a book, something you had always wanted to do, or uh, did did someone reach out to you and, and ask you to write a book, or was the idea yours? Oh, you know, that's, that's an interesting question, because uh, I, I, you know, I, I kind of thought about it, but then I had, uh, I had some people contact me, and they were interested in the book. You know, I wasn't sure, uh, you know, for who would write the book and how they would write the book and on and on and on. Uh, but yeah, I, I had, um, uh, I first had a contact with John Crawford. They suggested that I work with, uh, Ian Douglas Mm -hmm. and he was good to work with. And, uh, you know, we spent, uh, we spent probably six months twice a week, every week for about six months on the phone for, you know, you know, a couple of hours. And we, you know, I would let him have all this information about, you know, this place, that place, what happened and on and on and wrestlers and what happened between the wrestlers and what happened in the ring, what happened outside the ring, what happened there on and on, you know? So, uh, yeah, I had, uh, I had a lot to offer, you know, because um, when they read my book, they're going to find out they're going to find out the things that they would never ever find out um, by uh, by just watching wrestling or just reading a reading a few articles here and there, because they're. There were all kinds of interactions between the wrestlers in the ring, outside of the rings. You know, you had, 
you know, you had the ones you liked, the ones you didn't like, you know, the ones you got in the fight with in the dressing room or whatever, you know. And, um, you know, the women and so forth and so on. And, 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 you know, so who are the guys that, you know, that you really like that you can really depend on who was really great to work with and who was, you know, was a real prick and, and, uh, that type of thing. So when, uh, so when people read my book, they're going to find out a wealth of information that they could never find ever, ever find. And, and then too, I, you know, through the years, you know, I saved a lot of articles and news clippings and uh, programs and a lot of photo and a lot of photographs too. Now this is so they also after after they made the book they they also uh, I had a I had a I had a scrapbook and they and they made a copy of that. And it's 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 got over I don't know over 500 articles and pictures and news clippings from all over the country and all over the world you know from Hong Kong to Malaysia to New Zealand to to Australia uh, yeah from. New York to San Francisco to Vancouver, uh, which I had a, a lot of success in too, you know, in Vancouver. And uh, so it, if they're interested, they can not only get the book, but they can get my scrapbook too if they want to order that. Okay, so great. The book and the scrapbook are both available. And as I mentioned earlier, I really enjoy this book because it's not like most other wrestling books where the author brags about themselves constantly. Uh, and in fact, when you read Brute Power, you'll learn about Michael's upbringing. Uh, and it's a lot, really a lot different than what you hear from most wrestlers. Like I mentioned earlier, this is the story of a, a fairly regular guy with a fairly regular upbringing, a very regular family life who somehow, some way after graduating college ended up in a very irregular profession and that of course is the profession of professional wrestling yeah absolutely well you know when i grew up too when i was a kid uh, uh we had a family the second house yeah yeah the second house over he was a referee for wrestling and and this was in the 50s you know and and he had a young son and you know uh his his son and I, you know, we used to hang out together. We were young, you know. I mean, real young, you know. And uh, and every so often, he would take us to the uh, wrestling matches. And you know, that was just a real thrill for me, you know, because you got to see at that time, um, yeah, the names back then, you know, they had uh, the Bruiser. Yeah, so Dick the Bruiser, Yukon mm -hmm. Eric, yeah, so Cowboy Ellis, the Shire Brothers. Uh, you know, I mean, this, you know, and this was when wrestling really began when they when they first when they first had it on the television, you know, you know, on TV, right? 
and oh, oh my God, it was hot. I mean, hot, hot. I mean, I mean, every time I went, you know, the crowds were really, really, you know, large, or they were sold out, and it was really, really exciting, you know. And I was just a kid. I used to watch it, and so you know that I, I'm, a, I'm sure that I got my interest in professional wrestling from that because I, because I, you know, I was really. I was really thrilled to see the matches and watch the wrestlers. And every so often I got to meet the wrestlers. And, you know, I thought that was a thrill too, because, you know, I was just a young kid, you know, uh, roughly 10 years old or 12 years old, hour old. It was, uh, so it was just a lot of fun. And, and you know, I mean, I, I really enjoyed it. So I'm presuming that's, you know, where I got the interest in it. And that's how that began. And your interest carried you a step further into the squared circle and the wild world of professional wrestling. Uh, Once again, the book is titled Brute Power, the Autobiography of Bugsy McGraw. Of course, you can pick it up at Amazon or wherever you buy your books. And this was actually a finalist uh, in 2019 for the Wrestling Observer Newsletter's Best Pro Wrestling Book. Yeah, we were, uh, I think, um, yeah, we were a finalist. We were like number two. I don't know who was number one, but we were number two on that list. Yeah. Well, in, in my heart, number one. In my heart, Michael, you'll always be number one. You'll, you'll never be number two in my eyes. You'll always be number one. I truly want to thank you for taking time from your busy schedule of relaxing in Daytona Beach in, in retirement to speak with me and to let our listeners know a little bit more about The Brute. Oh, yeah. Well, well you know, I was wrestling for Watts as The Brute. And then um, actually, I had I had come from New York. I don't know why. Why he wanted to use that name? Because I had been in uh, working for Vince Senior in New York under under Pugsy McGraw, you know, mm-hmm. and that's a name that I used mostly. But also when um, when I was in um, Vancouver, I used the name Brute, but. Um, Vince McMahon, uh, Vince, Vince McMahon, the senior, he wanted to change it, you know. Uh, so said, okay, because he was going to, you know, he was going to feature me. So I thought, well, if you want to change the name, I want to make money. So, okay with me. Let's do it. Right. Sometimes that's how it works. Uh, if the promoter is willing to pay you, you you might have to, you know, bend a little bit and uh, take on the name. And as you mentioned, Vince Sr. was the one who named you Bugsy McGraw. And then depending on where you were later in your career, sometimes you would go back to the name The Brute. And sometimes you would go back to Bugsy McGraw. So again, uh, as you mentioned, uh, yeah. whatever name they wanted as as long as the check cleared, you didn't care what name they wrote on the check. <laughs> Show me the money. Show, Show you the me money, the huh? money. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah. Be- before I let you go, any last words you want to say to our listeners, the majority of whom are fans of the territorial era and certainly remember you from your many uh, matches in various places in the 1970s and 1980s. Anything you'd like to say to them? 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, it, uh, when, uh, well, I've come to the point, you know, well, actually, uh, this began in the 80s when um, the only thing I would have, I would say that's really important in life is, is that I found God. And when and when you and when you accept in Jesus Christ as your Savior, that will change your life forever, and it changes your life in a very positive way, in a strong way. So I would suggest all, you know, if you have any any concerns or worries in life, you have to seek God. You have to go through His Son, the Lord, you know, the Lord uh, Jesus Christ. Well, thank you for sharing that. And again, it's a fascinating read, your autobiography, because after your wrestling career ended and right around the same time that you did find God, you ended up uh, reinventing yourself and working in a very rewarding and very demanding, but very rewarding career after wrestling. And we hear so many stories of wrestlers who can't ever leave professional wrestling. And another great thing about your story is there is a happy ending in your life after wrestling. And 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 a, and a large part of that is probably due to, uh, you know, the changes you made in your life and, and your beliefs afterwards. So I, I, for one, am very grateful that you were able to find happiness after your wrestling career, career ended. Uh, it's a wonderful uh, ending to a, a story about a wonderful man and a fantastic heel professional wrestler back in the day. So once again, Michael, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on Charting the Territories. Sure. Uh, you know, I mean, anytime you want to talk, we'll talk again. Because, you know, there's, uh, you know, I was in quite a few places and uh, and I had a lot of, a lot of ad, a lot of adventures, <laughs> you could say. <laughs> Probably too many to to cover in any one phone call. So perhaps it might take a series of discussions. Yeah. But many of the stories are in the book. So again, listeners, really, I truly, highly recommend uh, this book as well as Brian Blair's book, which was also uh, co-written by Ian Douglas. And another favorite of mine is the Grappler Lynn Denton's book, because as I mentioned, these are stories of just regular guys who ended up in the wild and wacky world of professional wrestling. So again, thank you so much, Mike. Have yeah. a wonderful day. And uh, perhaps I will take you up on your offer to speak again about your time in another territory. 